morning, everyone. If you uh, weren't here last week, uh, I need to tell you we're in a, uh, uh, for us, as, at least as a church, it's a little bit of an unusual series. We have been uh, marking the 500th anniversary of the Reformation by looking at what did they teach and what was it all about and uh, why, should we, uh, why should we know what, what, it, what it was. And we've said we're, we're not studying the Reformation because we like anniversaries or because uh, we want to study church history for history's sake. It isn't a history lesson, but we have been looking at it because 500 years ago, people discovered truths from the Bible that not only changed them, they, they transformed a continent. People felt uh, as if their eyes had been opened and their lives had been changed. For instance, the uh, German Martin Luther described his feelings this way. I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That, that's how him describing his experience in coming to see these truths of Scripture that we'll be looking at this, this month. A few years later, an Englishman named William Tyndale, who's famous for the Tyndale Bible, one of the first English Bibles, he said, These are merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Now, if somebody, if another person said that, that, that may still be a significant statement, but I'm half British, and I know that for a British man to talk about singing and dancing and leaping for joy, it has to be something special, right? This is not the usual response of, uh, uh, of, of someone from Britain. And so it, we're talking about incredibly powerful truths that have brought incredible joy, delight, uh, even some singing and dancing uh, to some otherwise very staid uh, theolo- theologians. Despite that, most people who call themselves Protestants today really are not aware of what happened in the Reformation. They're not aware of uh, it, both the historical event or exactly what do those truths mean. Uh, some are, are, as we'll see later on, uh, just not, not aware of these truths that were discovered. So it isn't a history lesson. We, it's an appeal for each of us to examine our hearts and what we believe and see whether we have, in fact, experienced a personal reformation. And if not, it's an invitation to, uh, to that very thing. It's a call to discover truths from the Bible that can change our lives. Now, last, last week we said the, the reformation actually is very simple to understand because there are five slogans and they all contain the word sola or that's just a latin word for only five slogans they all contain the word only and it's that word only that distinguishes today the the teachings of the catholic church and the teachings of protestantism we said uh, last week when we looked at the first sola it was sola scriptura or scripture alone and we said that Catholicism holds, holds the scripture to be very, very holy, very sacred book. But they put tradition on the same level or on the same shelf as, as scripture. Uh, and they would teach that tradition and the Bible are to be treated with the same reverence and respect. Similarly, church authority sits alongside the Bible's authority in such a way that it is the Bible 
uh, uh, tradition and, and church authority that become really the, the, uh, uh, the authority in, in, a, in a believer's life. We taught and we looked at Scripture to see that Scripture alone should be on the top shelf, that the Bible itself is our only highest authority. And again, it's that word only that is distinguishing um, what we've been discovering about the Reformation. Today, we're going to look at the next sola, uh, sola gratias, and it's grace alone. And uh, looking at uh, the question of how is a believer sa- how is a person saved? How can someone experience salvation and forgiveness of sins? The Catholic Church, Church would teach that, that, that grace is very, very important. It's, an, it's essential. But what they discovered in the Reformation, that it was grace alone that was essential for someone to, uh, to receive God's forgiveness. Not grace plus our effort. Not grace plus anything. It is God's grace alone. That, uh, that, that, we, that, that is the basis of our receiving God's forgiveness. Many of you have heard something along those lines, but I'm going to ask three questions to dig a little bit deeper into how you believe and what you have come to understand of the Scriptures. Three questions to help you discover whether you've truly discovered the joy and the delight of grace alone. The first and most basic question is whether you're trying to earn God's forgiveness. Do you think that God will accept you into heaven because you've tried hard enough? Of course, God's grace is assumed. God's grace is important. But do you need to add to that grace your own effort and work? Are you trying to earn God's forgiveness? Now, this was one of the first and the most basic questions that the Reformation had to deal with. It started with a debate about indulgences. And when you hear the word indulgence, many people hear the word indulgence, they think of uh, treating yourself to a cinnamon bun on a you know, Friday afternoon when you know you should be reaching out for carrot sticks and, and, and celery. You go for the cinnamon bun and you say, well, I've enjoyed an indulgence. You know? uh, that's typically how we use the word indulgence today. But... Uh, This morning, at least, when I talk about indulgence, I'm not talking about the cinnamon cinnamon bun. We're talking about uh, the the teaching of the Catholic Church uh, of uh, of a very different kind. Indulgences are things done to erase the temporal punishment of sin. And the Catholic Church would teach that Jesus takes care of the eternal, eternal punishment for sin, but indulgences can take care of the temporal punishment for sin. And although, the, although Jesus would take care of eternal punishment, we will either receive punishment in this life and take care of that punishment in this life through our own effort, through things like indulgences or, or penance that we'll look at later, or in the next life, we will receive the punishment for, for those, uh, the temporal punishment for those sins in a, in a place called purgatory. When Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, they were mostly talking about indulgences. It was the thing that really ignited things and started the ball rolling to, uh, in a in broad sweeping way to look at what, what do we really believe and what does the Bible actually teach? And it was this issue of indulgences that, that, uh, that started things rolling. 
depending on where you fell in, in if you've had any experience of the Catholic Church, uh, indulgences kind of went out of style for, for quite some time. They've actually made a resurgence. Uh, they, ha- they are on the, on the comeback. In uh, last year, for instance, there were seven churches that, that were designated uh, in the GTA where uh, special indulgences could be, uh, could be obtained. And uh, uh, indulgences are, are on the comeback. So how does it work? If you, for instance, go to confession, receive communion, pray for the Pope, and read the Bible for at least half an hour, you can get an indulgence. And it will either, depending on your spiritual condition, it will either reduce the temporal punishment for sin, or it will completely uh, eliminate the temporal punishment from, from sin. Eliminate it, that is, until you commit the next sin. And then the process starts all over again. The thing about indulgences that are so attractive is that you can receive one for yourself, but you can also receive one for a uh, deceased loved one. And, uh, and it's that, that sense that there's something that I can do for someone who has already died to reduce their suffering, to take away their pain, to uh, uh, spare them from some of the uh, the, the suffering of, of uh, purgatory. Let's take a look at the actual teaching here. Article 1471 of the Catholic Catechism, for instance, says this, an indulgence removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. Indulgences may be applied to the living or the dead. I mentioned that they're making a comeback. Uh, when asked, why are they making a comeback? There were a Jesuit minister in the, in the States, Tom Reese, replied, the church wants the idea of personal sin back in the equation. Wants the idea of people to be thinking about sin, to be, to be dealing with sin, to be concerned about sin. That's, that's what has brought indulgences um, back into, into vogue. They're also part of the Roman Catholic Church's official teaching. So you cannot be a... Uh, a good standing Catholic and not believe in indulgences. They are uh, crucial to, uh, to, to, to their, their doctrine and understanding of Scripture. And so it's important that we understand, is that what the Bible actually teaches? If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And want to look with you together at... Uh, uh, at a passage of scripture that I think in this area of grace alone is crucial to understanding. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verses 4 down to verse 9. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, I want you to look at the words. They're packed full of, 
of meaning, and there's a lot of repetition, and, and, and I want, want you to just, just carefully work through with me what it's, what it's actually saying here. It starts off by saying that God is rich in mercy. That means he wants to forgive people. He wants to, to show mercy to people. And that mercy is re- rooted in his great love for humanity. God has a profound love for all of us. The problem is that according to verse 5, we're dead in our trespasses. We have a death sentence hanging over us because of our sins. And so there's, there's this God who is, who is rich and great in mercy. And there are, there's humanity who is dead in their trespasses due to sin. We have a death sentence hanging over us, meaning we're, we're, we're destined to hell because we've turned our backs on God. Started in the garden and it's continued ever since. That's important. That word dead in our trespasses is important to everything that we say today because if all we had were just some spiritual parking tickets, then if we just did a little bit of community service, we could get a reduction in our time, right? But if we're actually on death row due to our sins, no amount of uh, our good behavior is, gonna, is really going to change anything. We're dead in our trespasses. And if we're under a spiritual death sentence, we have to recognize that we are in an otherwise hopeless condition. Utterly hopeless. There wouldn't be any hope, that is. But verse 5 says, by grace, you have been saved. That we, we can be saved, and if we're going to be saved, it will happen because of the grace of God. Now, grace is a word that gets used in churches often without really being understood. It's a word that we hear and maybe sometimes even use, but we often don't think deeply about what it actually means. The ancient Greeks used the word grace whenever a strong person or uh, a rich person or, or someone with, with ability or means would help someone who was more needy. It was a, a, a word to, uh, used to describe someone who would, who would reach out and help someone up who otherwise couldn't help themselves. Jews in the first century used it to translate probably one of the most important Hebrew words in the Old Testament. It's a word that we've looked at in the past. It's a word that means loving kindness. It gets translated as loving kindness. It's this powerful word that describes God, God's covenant love, his, his love commitment. Uh, and uh, they use this word, same word grace to translate that word. When it says we're saved by grace, the idea is that because of God's unconditional love towards us, he is moved to rescue people who are otherwise helpless and also undeserving of his help. We were dead in our sins, and he acted to rescue us as an act of loving kindness. That, That is God's orientation to us. Anne Lamott puts it this way. She says, grace means you're in a different universe from where you'd been stuck when you had absolutely no way of getting there on your own. And, and, and it's absolutely no way of getting there on your own because, again, we were dead in our trespasses. We couldn't get out. We couldn't save ourselves. See, nothing that we could do, but because of God's grace, it's possible. What Protestants often don't recognize is that the Catholic Church teaches this. The Catholic Church believes in the grace of God. The Catholic Church teaches that grace, God's grace, 
gets you out of hell. But there's still a lot of punishment and payment that needs to take place to get you out of what they're calling the temporal punishment of sin. That takes place in this life and following this life in purgatory. So Jesus gets you out of hell, but indulgences and penance get you out of purgatory. The Bible, however, teaches that God doesn't save us on the basis of anything we do. We cannot earn one ounce of God's forgiveness in our lives. It only comes as a gift. Look at the passage from Ephesians 2 again. What does God's incredible grace do to people who are dead in their sins? Verse 6 says, it raises them up and seats them in heavenly places. But surely we've got to do something to contribute to this, right? You don't just get to heaven. You, you don't just get like to be with Jesus because of God's grace. Surely there's something we contribute. We've got to do something. Surely we've got to be good enough and worthy enough and work hard enough. What, is, what does the text say, though? In verse 8, after saying that we're saved by grace, it adds, and they knew what grace was already, but they just add this just to layer it on because we wouldn't otherwise believe it. And this is not your own doing. Okay, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. It's, it's not anything I do. And then he says, it's a gift of God. Again, just piling on words that all are describing the exact same thing from different angles. It's God's grace. It's nothing that you do. It's a gift. We get all of that. It's nothing that we're contributing here. And in case we still didn't get it, verse 9 adds, not a result of works so that no one may boast. No one will stand before God with a sense of, accomplishment because they did it because they endured because they they earned their forgiveness or they somehow contributed when I, I went dutch with jesus or something he paid half i paid half i we 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 kind of each had our part there's none of that not of your own doing it's a gift it's god's grace not a result of works. No one's going to be boasting about this. Nobody's going to pat themselves on their back that they got to heaven. We cannot earn for God's forgiveness. And again, it all starts back with that word, dead in our trespasses. You cannot get out of a death sentence. You are only pardoned for a death sentence. If, you're, if you've got a parking ticket, you might have it cut in half. Even if you've got a 10-year 10 10 year prison sentence, you might get time off for good behavior. But if it's a death sentence, you're either going to be dead or you'll be made alive. And that only takes place on the basis of a pardon. It's only by grace. The only way we get this gift, according to verse 8, not through our effort, not through anything that we've done, not through anything that we can boast about, but through faith. And so people will either try to earn God's forgiveness and not find it, or they will receive his forgiveness as a free gift by faith. A survey by the Pew Research Center this summer found that even though it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, even though because it's the 500th anniversary, there's been all kinds of extra teaching and information about uh, the truths of the Reformation, 
52% of U.S. Protestants believe that both good deeds and faith are necessary for, fel- for salvation. A majority of Protestants, at least in the U.S., and I suspect here in Canada, haven't yet grasped what this passage is teaching, nor what the Reformation discovered. And maybe some of you are in that exact same boat. Maybe you haven't either come to, come to understand grace alone. Maybe you don't see why it's such a big deal. Maybe, maybe I'll, okay, maybe that's what it's saying, but, but who cares? It's kind of just splitting hairs, isn't it? Just, it's just that word only. I mean, you're not going to run out and try and get an indulgence, but working to try and earn God's forgiveness or at least to be worthy of it, that, that can't be such a bad thing, can it? The Bible suggests those, however, are two profoundly different approaches to life, approaches to faith, and approaches to salvation. So I'm going to look at it from a different approach. I want, you to, ask, I want to ask you a different question. I want to ask you, are you living your life out of debt or out of gratitude? Out of debt or out of gratitude? I, I started by asking if you're trying to earn God's forgiveness, and we said only a gift can save you. It's only God's grace. Nothing we can do to earn it or be worthy of it. But are you living out of gratitude or debt? Are you so overwhelmed by God's amazing grace that you want to serve him? You want to follow him? You want to honor him? Or or are you so aware of the debt of your sin that you feel that you ought to serve him, ought to follow him, ought to honor him? Is it a want to or an ought to? Is it a overwhelmed by gratitude for God's grace or a, boy, I kind of just keep blowing it, I better try harder. Which of those perspectives describes your life? The second of those approaches is best expressed by the Catholic practice of penance. So when a Catholic sins, they're encouraged to do something called penance. Depending on the sin, the actual deed might be different, but the basic idea is that Baptism cleans the slate. That kind of wipes things clear and creates this clean slate. But every time you sin, after that, you get a little X in the loss column. And with that X in the loss column, you can't go back and get baptized again, although that would seem to to clear the slate again. So what you've got to do is do something extra over here in the win column to get a check mark. And you keep trying to, to balance off the, the losses with the wins and, and, and clearing the slate again. Baptism, they would teach, clears the slate once, but then after that, you're working to keep, keep the slate, keep wiping it off, keep wiping it off, keep matching off those, those X's with, with uh, check marks in the wind column. Because of that, a Catholic is encouraged to do many of the same things that a Christian is, but for radically different reasons. And so people who aren't aware of the Reformation or aren't aware of really the question of grace alone will say, wow, that person's doing like all the things I am. They, they, must, be, they must believe the same things. The question is, why are they doing them? Look at what Article 1437 of the Catholic Catechism says about penance. Reading sacred scripture, praying, and then some other things are listed, some other um, otherwise good or religious things, 
every sincere act of worship or devotion, listen to this, revives the spirit of conversion and repentance within us and contributes to the forgiveness of our sins. Now, is, does the Bible encourage reading Scripture? Absolutely. Is praying a good thing? Yes, it is. Uh, are sincere acts of worship and devotion, are those good things? Do, do, we, do we teach those? Absolutely. But do any of those things revive the spirit of our conversion? Do they kind of bring it back to life and put it back into force for us? Absolutely not. Do any of those things contribute to the forgiveness of sins? That's the question we want to answer from Scripture. Let's, let's look at uh, Galatians 2.21. Galatians 2.21 speaks again about that amazing grace that we saw earlier. The gift of God that saves people who are dead in their sins. But look what it says about that grace here. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying that you can actually nullify the grace of God, that gift. You can cancel or reject his gift of salvation. When I see this word nullify here, I picture like, you know when you get those scratch and win cards at the, at the gas station or whatever, and, and you're really excited, and so you go and scratch it off, and it says, winner, and you're like, oh, that's amazing. But you're so excited you scratch off the other two, two circles as well, and then you realize, oh, no, my ticket's void now. Like, I, I, had, I, had, a, I, had, a free, I had a free coffee or something because I, I scratched the, the right, the right uh, circle, but I kept on scratching, and now the ticket's void. I have nullified the gift. I have voided the ticket. That's what Paul's saying that we can do with the grace of God when we try and add to it, when we bring our, uh, our own efforts to try and earn something that God wanted to give as a free gift. He says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And the sense is that if we try and cancel out our sins by doing lots of good things to try and get some check marks in the win column to balance off the X's in the, in the loss column, then we're treating Christ's death at the cross as useless. doesn't really make any difference for us. doesn't really mean anything. If you think about it, if you could earn God's forgiven, get forgiveness by saying a few Hail Marys and Our Fathers, then why on earth would Jesus have had to die on the cross? What does this death really mean? So the question is, do you live as if Christ died for no, no purpose? Like his death doesn't really matter. Like what you do is somehow comparable or as significant as what he did in dying for our sins. Is your response to sin in your life, I've got to try harder or God won't forgive me. Maybe at this point some spiritual math will help. When I look at these verses, I think of these two spiritual equations. And I want you to ask which one of these spiritual equations best represents your life. The first one says, God's grace plus my effort equals forgiveness. It's saying God's grace is nice. It's helpful. Like Jesus, when he died on the cross, like he really knocked himself out. That was inspiring stuff. 
helpful. And that's really good. And as long as I work as hard as I can and avoid as much sin as I'm, I'm able to and try to do as much as I can to make up for it, then God will probably, if I've done enough of those things, he'll probably forgive me. So I've got to contribute to my forgiveness. That's the first equation. The second equation is very different. It says God's grace alone equals my forgiveness and my effort. Here, God's grace alone accomplishes my forgiveness. So I receive God's pardon simply by believing, simply by faith. I receive all of God's forgiveness, all of his grace. Nothing I can do to add to it. But here's the point that many people don't understand. That same grace produces the effort. The grace of God produces in me uh, the, the, the effort and the desire. His grace stirs and motivates my effort. So I want to read the Bible because I, I want to know this God who has is, who is saved me by his grace. I want to know more about who he is. I want to pray, not as penance for the debt of my sin, but as in gratitude to a God who would save someone who didn't deserve it. What kind of God is that? I want to I talk to him. I want to know him. I want to draw close to him. And again, it's that difference between the ought to and the want to. It's what's the motivation that's driving it? Which one of those equations represents your life? Are you living out of debt or gratitude? Now, we started looking at indulgences and asked whether you're trying to earn God's forgiveness. Then we looked at penance and asked whether you're living out of debt or gratitude. The final question I'd ask you to help you to see whether you discover the joy of grace alone is, are you punishing yourself for your sins? Are you punishing yourself for your sins? People do this in many ways. Uh, Today, people are doing this by cutting themselves. People are are not always conscious of all of, the, all of the reasons and the motivations for doing that. But people punish themselves by, by cutting. Other people condemn themselves as no good. It's, it's this negative self, self-talk that they will, they will punish themselves for their sins. Others will allow a dark mood to settle in over them and say, I think I deserve this. Like they, they, they won't, they don't come out of it because they think that this is something that they deserve because they're a bad person. They don't deserve to feel good. Catholic teaching actually commends punishment for our sins. It takes many forms, but probably no clearer than in their concept of purgatory. Uh, listen to Article 1472. It says, Every sin must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. So again, the idea is Jesus and grace took care of eternal punishment for sin. But we've still got the temporal punishment for sin to take care of on our own, through our own effort. So I'll do that either on earth penance, indulgences, all that work. And what I don't get finished up here on earth, then I get taken care of through the flames of purgatory for, uh, for however, however long. 
In the survey I mentioned earlier, amazingly, three in ten Protestants, not not Catholics, Protestant people who identify as Protestant Christians, three in ten of them believe in, in purgatory. And I'm confident that a much greater number are punishing themselves for their sins. Imagine for a moment that it is, as we've been saying, actually grace that produces the effort, that motivates a person's uh, obedience and, and holiness. How much of a sense of grace could you really have if, first of all, you're busy trying to do enough good works to earn your own forgiveness, then giving enough and praying enough to somehow lessen someone else's punishment, a, a deceased loved one, And after all that, your only hope was the cleansing flames of purgatory, which even the Catholic Church can't tell you how long those will last for. You're not going to have much of a sense of the grace of God. Martin Luther had looked at this whole system and had mastered it. He had given himself to it with a, a, a level of devotion that probably hasn't been, hasn't been surpassed. And then, to his great astonishment and relief, he found that none of it was in the Bible. He had been worn out. He was exhausted. He had given himself with such dedication to the whole system, trying to earn his forgiveness, trying to lessen the the potential punishment, to deal with the purification of his own sins, to, to contribute to his own forgiveness. He was exhausted, guilt-ridden, and empty. And then he discovered for the first time that instead of the flames of purgatory, that all who had truly repented and believed in Jesus would go directly into the presence of God, go directly to to meet him and to experience his his grace in, in, in heaven for eternity. Probably nowhere is this clearer than with the thief on the cross. Jesus was cru- when Jesus was crucified, he wasn't alone, right? Two criminals, one on either side. One of them mocks Jesus, but the other one famously looks to him in repentance. He, he, he recognizes quite freely his own sins. He admits them. But as he admits his sin, he also looks to Jesus Christ. In verse 42, he asks, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's a strange question to ask of someone who's dying, right? Like, you're, not, you're, you're looking to re- make, you typically make requests of people who are alive, not someone who's dying. But this man had come to realize that Jesus was a king and he had a kingdom. He was a king of another world. He saw in him the authority to forgive sins that human effort wouldn't wipe out. And at this point, if you've read the catechism well enough, you're expecting Jesus to give him a list of of duties and commands, right? You're expecting him to explain, you know, this is, this, what you've done here really is a mortal sin, not a venial sin, and so uh, you, you, you need to pray an awful lot of our fathers. And with the spikes through your hands, the rosary is out, but, but there, there's got to be some, some, some work that you can do. Now, in the remaining minutes that you have here, try your best. And once you're done that, Maybe a few hundred years of purgatory and the flames will deal with the rest of the impurity that's still left and you make up for the rest. And someday, I'll see you in paradise. You expect at least something along those lines. But, but what does he actually say? 
verse 43, he says, truly, I say to you, and, and by the way, that's what Jesus says when, when he's a, ever about to say something that he knows that people will not otherwise believe. It's like, you've got to sit down for this, but he can't sit down. So he just says, truly, I say to you, and he's, he's setting him up, some, up for something that will floor him. And he says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Doesn't add any more commands. Doesn't say there's something extra you need to do. He doesn't say there's kind of something kind of coming in between there. He's not saying there's anything that you need to contribute. It's all of grace. And you have demonstrated by your repentance and faith that you are willing to receive this free gift. And the gift is yours. No more punishment. No more suffering. Not even a limited probation. For the person who turns from his sin and looks to Jesus in simple faith, salvation, forgiveness, acceptance from God is held out as a gift. And so the question we're left with is, are you still punishing yourself for sins that Jesus would otherwise freely forgive? Do you beat yourself up when you blow it? Do you condemn yourself or emotionally put yourself in the corner? when you realize that you've done something that displeases God? Do you try to compensate for your sins with good stuff? You read the Bible more. Do you you try and do something as penance to try and make up for it? With Jesus, we don't have to live like that anymore. He suffered for us. He paid the penalty in our place. If we turn from our sins and put all our trust in him, He saves us as a gift by grace alone. We don't contribute a thing. But that grace changes us. It creates in us new life and new desires, a new power, a new strength. So instead of punishing ourselves for our sins, we can do something that's a lot more healthy. We can admit the sin and confront the sin and ask for Jesus' help to, to deal with it and to move on. We, we have the freedom now to, to share it with others who could be a help to us in the process. By his grace, he gives us power to change. He gives us power to get help. He gives us wisdom to go in another direction. So let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing grace. We don't deserve your love and we confess we, we don't completely understand it, how you could love people who are so undeserving. But we're grateful for it. Thank you for your saving grace. Give us the confidence to put all our trust in Jesus Christ and to rest in your grace alone. Father, help us from thinking that we can somehow earn your forgiveness. By faith, help us to rest in it instead. Keep us from living our lives in debt. By faith, help us to live instead in gratitude for all you've done. Keep us, Father, from punishing ourselves for our sins. By faith, help us to do something more productive. Help us to confront our sins and turn from them and seek by your Spirit to grow in obedience to your word. For we ask you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.